The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're just breaking into the chapter, so we're going to start in verse 1. Okay? We're continuing this week in our series. It's called Death to Division. So what we're doing is we're taking 12 weeks to go through the book of Ephesians verse by verse. Uh, Paul wrote this letter while in prison, so it's just good to keep that in mind. Uh, he was in prison for spreading the good news about Jesus throughout the ancient world. Uh, as we have already seen over the last couple weeks, Ephesians is a treasure chest full of rich, eternal truth and it's been prized by followers of Christ for roughly two millennia. And so we're kind of joining in with many who have gone before us as we study this very deep and profound letter from the Apostle Paul. Uh, we, I just want to encourage you, we should not be discouraged if we find ourselves treading water a bit, uh, trying to comprehend what all is said in this letter. Uh, even Peter who was the leader of the apostles, spent a whole lot of time, face time with Jesus, he said in 2 Peter 3.16 that sometimes the things Paul writes are hard to understand, okay? So Peter even was, was having a hard time every once in a while uh, with what it was that Paul was writing. Uh, so we're in good company if we find ourselves having to work a little bit with God's help to get it. Uh, the truth is really, though, that we are never able to... Uh, on our own, fully understand God's word. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's why Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, we saw this last week, uh, that we, we need God to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. We need God's help every time we approach his word uh, to see with spiritual eyes. And so uh, let's do that. Let's approach God's word now with soft, humble, open hearts, and we'll see what it is he has for us, Okay. So I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 2. This is verses 1 through 10. Here we go. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God." not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Praise God for his word. Amen. So let's start back at verses 1 and 2. We're just going to work through this, okay? So next week, sneak peek. I think that's uh, what the marketers do to try to get you to come back. I, I, that's not really what I'm doing. Uh, but next week, we're going to hit the verses that inspired the title for this series, okay? Uh, in verse 14 of chapter 2, we are told that Jesus broke down the barrier of the dividing wall between us and God and between us 
and one another. And so this is the lens that we're using to view all that we encounter through this letter. And here we see that before Christ, every man and every woman is dead in sin. Or you could say another way, they were separated from life. Okay? But this, this can kind of be hard to understand, right? People who have not turned uh, from sin to trust in Jesus, they're not literal corpses, uh, nor were we before grace grasped our hearts. They're not visibly different from those who belong to Jesus. They're not like zombies in The Walking Dead or some other portrayal uh, out there. So in order to get this and understand what does it mean to be dead in trespasses and sins, we, we have to think back to God's original intent to see the reality and feel the true gravity of what it means to be dead in our trespasses and sins. We do need to take the time to grasp it because it's heavy and it needs to be. Adam and Eve were made by God, perfect and without any sin. In this state, they were spiritually alive, which means they were constantly connected to God, who is the source of eternal and spiritual life. Jesus helps us see how this works in John 15 when he teaches about vines and branches. You remember that? Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so he's showing us that the, the source of life is connected through that vine that's connected to the ground that pulls up the nutrients and that we connected to that vine are the branches and that with, if you separate one of those branches from that vine, that death is the immediate result. And so there's a lot of word pictures. We're talking about deep, mysterious things, right? Like how are humans connected to God? What is spiritual life, right? That's, that's not just, it's, it's ethereal and it's kind of hard to kind of put a tack in it and say, yeah, I totally understand that. But Jesus is very gracious. He teaches. God throughout his word teaches us in different ways and metaphors, uh, kind of like, you know, um, if, there, th things, things that God is dealing with is, is on a whole nother level, right? Like Max is five. If he comes up to me and says, hey, dad, could you explain to me like the, the high level engineering uh, theory behind an internal combustion engine real quick? And he like whips his notepad out, you know? Like, I'm going to be having a real hard time to, like, get that down to his level, it, even the parts I understand, right? That's what most of you were thinking. Yeah, let's see you explain that to me, right? So that's fine. It's okay. I appreciate your vote of confidence. That's cool. Kind of a car guy, okay? Uh, but but I'm going I'm to have to really think of ways to try to bring that down to a picture he can understand. But God is really gracious, and, and, and he's not like that teacher I had in high school that just expected me to know everything he knew, right? <laughs> just He's ripping it out on the board, and I'm like, dude, I'm not, you know, I'm out. I'm going to go to the bathroom, probably end up in the cafeteria trying to get a snack because I'm not learning anything. That's not how God is. God's a much better teacher. He's patient father, right? And so he'll, he'll break things down. He'll, he'll put it in a word picture so we can get it. I'm so thankful for that. Uh, in addition to that, in John chapter 1, verse 4, it says that in him, it's talking about Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, right? So Jesus, John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. We're talking about how it is that life comes from God and how separation from God is spiritual death, what that means. Um, so Adam and Eve, they had that. They had that full, perfect connectedness to God, but God warned them what would happen if they disobeyed him. And he told them that death was the result. And what we need to understand, I think sometimes we don't understand <laughs> is that this was not an overly strict or arbitrary consequence for eating the fruit that God told them not to. I've, I probably had this thought at some point in my journey, uh, coming to understand the things of God. I know I've had people ask me, it's like, man, 
all they did was eat a piece of fruit, right? And like the whole world is cursed, death just right on everybody forever. Like it's, it just seems maybe like an overreaction. That, and, and, you know, that's, <laughs> I get it, but, but that's, we're, not, we're not seeing it with spiritual eyes. We need a wisdom of, or a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation to get that. So, uh, I mean, we, we need to understand God's not like that. God is not like, he's not like our mama that told us not to eat something. I mean, how many of you have ever, how many of you ever remember eating something that your mama told you not to eat and, and how that went, right? I mean, there was, there's, there's one mama here that posted recently about her kids eating like four boxes of Pop-Tarts in two hours or something crazy like that. And, you know, we did that as kids. I still remember the bewildered look of disgust on my own mother's face when she came home one time and I had eaten an entire box, I'm talking family-sized box of cereal, in one sitting. You know, and that was for everybody. For the week, you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> yup, I was just finishing up, you know, probably eating it with a serving spoon. But anyways... Um, what about your spouse? You ever eaten the leftovers? Your spouse had been looking forward to coming, like all day at work, they were looking forward to those leftovers, and, and you ate those? You ate those leftovers, whether in malice or mistakenly, whatever you did, right? Like, you know, all, all H-E double hockey sticks can break loose in that scenario right there. It can go real bad. So I'm trying to help you understand why God got so angry. Um, it's, it's a big deal. That's not, that's not really... It at all, right? Because God is, God is not easily angered. He's not like a spouse whose leftovers got eight. He's not like a mom disappointed in her whole box of cereal eaten son. Uh, that's not how God is. The Bible says he is, he is slow to anger. Um, here, here's the reality. This was not an overreaction from God. The reality is that spiritual life comes from connection to God, okay? He did say if you eat of that fruit, death is going to happen, but here's why. Spiritual life comes from connection to God. God is perfect and can only be connected to that which is perfect. You understand, in order for death to be the resulting consequence of their disobedience did not require an additional action from God. Let me see if I can break it down even more. The scriptures tell us elsewhere that light and dark do not mix. It's not totally unlike the connection between a mother and her baby through the umbilical cord. When Adam and Eve chose sin instead of God, they effectively cut that cord and the eternal life that it supplied. It wasn't that God didn't warn them. It wasn't that God threw a tantrum because he came down and they just caught him in a bad mood. It's like, oh, oh you're going to eat the fruit I told you not to eat. Really? World is cursed, right? That's not, that's not what happened. What happened is Adam and Eve were connected in perfect life and harmony with our perfect God, and he can't, light and dark doesn't mix. God can't be in close, connected, relational fellowship with imperfection. That's why he told his people, don't do this, because if you do this, death will result. We will not have the same relationship. But amazingly, we, we see that God's not an overreacting uh, egomaniac, because in, in Genesis 3, immediately, he's, he's saying, okay, here's the consequences. Man, woman, serpent. And, and immediately, he's already talking about the fact that, yeah, the serpent, you're, you're going you're gonna, to, the seed of woman's coming. Yeah, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. God's already laying out the fact that there's a plan of redemption. We're going to come up out of this. It's going to take some time. But, but my plan's going to unfold. And ultimately, this thing that I set up in the beginning, we're going to have it in the end. It's, it's me and you forever. That's what God's about. And he's done it through Christ. It's amazing. 
Each one of us, that choice Adam and Eve made to cut that umbilical cord, each one of us have made the same choice. Romans 3.23 says that we've all sinned, all of us, and fallen short of the glory of God. And thus, we've been cut off from the life of God. Verses 2 and 3, they tell us that we can be spiritually dead and, and not even notice. What does it say? It says, in, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. It says, we walked according to the course of this. We walked according to the course of this world, and we lived in the lust of our flesh. It's like that old example, you've all heard it, of a frog in a pot of water, and you turn it on, turn that boiler on, and it's, you just turn it up a degree at a time, and that, that, that eventually that, that frog's in a lot of trouble, it just doesn't know it. That thing sit there and boil to death. We, we are like that. But this should not be the case for those who have tasted the living water that Jesus provides. We know that the scriptures teach that being raised to life through Christ does not mean we're totally free of our potential to sin. But when we do, it should not just be a common thing that goes unnoticed. Think about it this way. A dead man may be very comfortable in his coffin, but a living person should be quite unsettled to find themselves there. If I wake up in a coffin, all H-E double hockey sticks is breaking loose, right? Knees, elbows, whatever it takes, I'm coming up out of the coffin, you know, and God help whoever's holding the lid down, right? No, 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 no. But you see, what he's talking about, there's a distinction. You formerly walked in that foolishness. You lived in that lust. You, didn't, you couldn't even tell, man. You didn't even understand. But part of the difference is, are, are we made perfect at the point of justification when we're saved by grace? No. But what should happen is, that stuff shouldn't just go unnoticed. When we do disobey, it, sh it, should, it should cause us to, to stop. Our heart should ache that we have offended or that we have disobeyed a God so good and loving as ours. We should not find ourselves comfortable in the coffin. Not at all. This means we now walk in the light as he is in the light. And we get a beautiful and succinct summary of, of these things that I just said in the book of 1 John chapter 1. Uh, this will sound familiar to you because I, I, I speak from this a lot, but Here's what it says. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, that stops the extremes. That stops the extremes. There are people that believe that what the Bible teaches is that we should be perfect on this side of eternity, that we're going to attain perfection. Well, John said, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. We're fools. But on the other end, this keeps us from just not caring and just being, being the frog in the pot or the, the living man in the coffin, right? There, there's something we need to do. If, if we sin, we confess our sins, and we trust that he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God that that's true. 
I think we should say that the analogy of spiritual death is helpful. It's helpful for us to understand the severity and the gravity of our situation before Christ saves us. It is not the only metaphor, though, that we see in God's word to describe our state before redemption. When we overemphasize one of these metaphors and we don't consider the others, it can lead to errors in the way we understand the age-old conundrum of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Let me give you some examples. Here, Ephesians says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Absolutely. And that definitely paints a picture of how much trouble we're in without Jesus. Does it not? It does. But here's some other ways the scriptures use to describe those who have yet to turn from sin to trust in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 3 and 4, says that when, before Christ, we're blind, like blind men. Romans 6.17 says that we're slaves to sin before being set free by the blood of Christ. John 3.19-20 says we are lovers of darkness. Mark 2.17 uh, says that we're sick. Jesus said, I didn't come for those that are healthy. I came for the sick. Luke 15 says we're lost. Lost before Christ. Ephesians 2, 12, 2, 19 says that we're aliens, strangers, foreigners. Ephesians 2, 3 calls us a child of wrath. We just read that. Colossians 1, 13 says that we are under the power of darkness. Now, why did I read you all that? For two reasons. One, I don't want us to silo, as, as I feel some do, silo into one analogy the Bible uses to describe what we are and the state we're in before grace, because the Bible uses a lot of different examples. I think it's important for us to be well-rounded in understanding that. I think sometimes people have favorites and they just they ride that pony hard, and it, it's to the detriment of them understanding all that the Bible teaches. But on the other hand, uh, aside from that maybe doctrinal element and reason that I read all of that to you, I'm hoping reading these descriptions, these metaphors the Bible uses over and over again for those that are lost, has the potential of two effects. One, if you're somebody in here that is still on the fence or you're, you're here exploring what it means uh, to be a Christian, dear friend, I, I would just say to you that, that, that the Bible's talking about you when it says blind and sick and lost. Lovers of darkness. You see, there is no middle ground. We'd like to believe there is, but there's not. There's no neutral space to live in here. You are either with God or you are against him. You're either a child of promise or you are a child of wrath. And the only difference is, will you trust in Jesus and will you surrender to him and will you acknowledge that you need him to be your savior? That's it. And so for you, may, may you be shook, I hope you are, to hear how the truth of God's word describes somebody that is yet to surrender, to bow their knee to Christ. For those of you who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, for those of you who have eaten of the bread of life and drank the living water, I hope that your heart is broken anew for the lost as you hear the descriptions in God's word. That they are lost and sick. That they are blind. That they are enslaved to sin. And I will hope that through that you are spurred yet again somehow to love and good works. That that would cause us to shake the dust of religion. That it would cause us to move and to do something about the fact that we've been rescued from that. Brought into the kingdom of light. Commissioned called to be soldiers and ambassadors bringing this message of hope to all that we possibly can.
Pray to God that all those effects are had to the glory of God. Let's move on to verses 4, 5, and 6. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This should be a great encouragement to those who might be tempted to despair on National Singles Awareness Day, otherwise known as Valentine's Day, which is coming up this week, okay? Uh, now, I know, listen, even though, you know, we all say, <laughs> we all say we know, we know it's a made-up holiday and it doesn't really matter, right? Right? There are some, and I don't mean to make light of it, because this is real, there are some who really struggle with feeling lonely or unwanted or unloved because they're not involved in a romantic relationship, you know, on the day everyone pays 60% above retail for <laughs> stuffed animals, chocolate, and flowers, right? Um, and, and here's the reason that is possible. Here's the reason that po it's possible somebody will feel unwanted, unloved, or lonely uh, because of this holiday coming up. The problem is that sin separated us from the only source of true and perfect love. Because if we were connected to that in a holistic, vibrant way, then the lies of the culture that would cause people to feel lonely, unwanted, or unloved would have no effect. There is precious encouragement for every person whoever feels, not just this week, whoever feels unloved or unworthy in these verses we just read. And there is precious correction for those who assume that everyone loves them because they believe they are worthy on their own. See, it's interesting the contrast, isn't it? Verses 1, 2, and 3, what are they doing? It, the whole first three verses, it's just telling us how dark and foolish and dead we were <laughs> before being made righteous through the free gift of grace. Then, verses 4, 5, and 6 tells why God gave us that incredible gift. So what is it? Well, Reason number one, it says, but God being rich in mercy. So the first thing is, because God is rich in mercy, he has extended the gift of grace to those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, right? Trespasses means we've crossed the line. Sin means we've failed in various ways. We've rebelled, we've failed, every, every way you can think about it. We've done it all. We've transgressed, we've, we're treacherous against a God who is good and loving and perfect, but he is rich in mercy. The second thing it says is because of his great love with which he loved us. Then goes on to say everything else it says. So it gives us the reason, because God is rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us. So that's, that's verse four, right? But God being rich in mercy, because the great love with which he loved us. And then verse five is, is funny. It's almost like, so, so the first three verses is you were dead. Verse four, but God is rich in mercy. And because of this great love, 
And it's almost like Paul wants to make sure you didn't forget in one, in one verse. What's he go back to? Not because of anything good in you, right? Verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, like Paul, you, you already, bro, you said that. <laughs> you said it th- almost three times already in different ways. But, but you see the importance of us uh, hearing that and understanding that. So he, he kind of comes back around. And then verse 6, so, so, so he's doing this. Now, he, now in verse 6, he says, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's interesting because he talked about that uh, we, we walked uh, according to the power of the prince of the air. That prince of the air that it's talking about there, that is, that is a, a name for Satan. Uh, the, the air being kind of the, the heavenly realm above us. It's not the place where God's throne is. Obviously, God rules there, but that Satan has a temporary domain here in the earth, that uh, the authority that Adam was supposed to have uh, over the earth to rule in God's place underneath God's loving uh, kingship was that that authority basically was handed over from Adam to Satan. And so temporarily, uh, Satan is in control. If we didn't have the Bible, uh, we would I don't I don't know how we wouldn't just melt into a puddle of hopelessness because if this was the way it was always going to be, man, like you know I'm out. But thankfully, uh, we we know that what the end of the book says that this is not how it's always going to be. That ultimately, at the end of this thing, uh, that all the enemies of God are going to be made his footstool. And that there is going to be uh, uninterrupted joy, that sin is going to be defeated forever, that death is going to be defeated forever, that the forces of darkness, uh, that their day is coming, and that all things that were made wrong because of sin are going to be made right. And so we look forward to that great and glorious day, and we fight in the meantime. But what this is saying, it's very interesting. He says, so we used to walk according to the prince of the power of the air, underneath his oppression. So it's like, it's us prince of the power of the air, and then what does it say in verse 6? But we've been raised up. Where? Above the prince of the power of the air. We're sitting with Christ. Through Christ and in Christ, we are above in authority, the prince of the power of the air. Yes, he has some dominion, but it's only over those who have not pledged their allegiance to Christ, who have not been given righteousness and power, uh, the Holy Spirit, because they have been made one with Christ by faith. And so that's, that's encouraging. Um, you may not catch the contrast between verses 2 and 6, but that's definitely what's being said. We've been lifted up higher than that dominion, higher than the, the temporary authority Satan has. And we're supposed to do something with that. We're not supposed to be sitting around feeling sorry for ourselves all the time. We're not supposed to be uh, just, just walking around here milling about aimlessly. We're supposed to be doing something uh, with the, the righteousness and with the authority that God has given us through Christ. We're supposed to be making war out here. Um, I think oftentimes... We get distracted from that purpose, but I pray to God uh, that that would be less and less for us. If you struggle with feeling unworthy because you are not in a romantic relationship with another human, know that someone who is infinitely better than any human will ever be and who knows you infinitely more than any human ever will loves you so much that he suffered and died so he could be with you forever. I know, I know that our culture makes it seem like something is wrong or you are broken if you aren't in a relationship. And so I realize there is a constant wave of lies trying to convince you of the opposite of what I'm about to say. However, that does not change the truth. If you are unable to rejoice in God's supreme love for you, 
which, which by the way, it's not a cheap love that he just talked about. It's not a counterfeit love that was actually just manipulation to get something from you. It's a real love that was proven because he laid his life down for you. Jesus didn't just come speaking, you know, sweet platitudes and saying that he loved everybody and then, and then bounce, did he? No, he did something to show that that love he was talking about was true. He bled and died to save us, man. He went all the way, paid for us with his blood. But if you are unable to receive that love and rejoice in that love and be content in that love, then you are not ready for a romantic relationship with a human. I realize that may sound harsh, and I realize it's counterintuitive to all that the culture is saying, but many things that the Bible says are. You were made for that perfect love that only God gives, and if you aren't secure in it, you will be trying to get it from another human, and that always leads to disaster. I'm very careful with words like always. I only say it if I mean it. But every single time you try to get the perfect love that only God can supply from a human, it leads to disaster. For you and for them. And the symptoms, the stress cracks that that creates don't always show up right away. Sometimes it's years later. And sometimes that makes it hurt even worse. Now, to the person who assumes that God should love them because they assume everyone should, to the person who has a higher view of themselves than they ought to, it is because he is rich in mercy. And it's because of his great love. No matter how much you are aware or willing to acknowledge it, you are dead in your trespasses and sins and totally unworthy of the mercy and love that God freely gives until you trust by faith and are made righteous through the perfect sacrifice of Christ. It is his mercy and it is his love. There is nothing in you that made you worthy of God loving you. It is because of who he is. But simply because he does, simply because he does, that, that informs your identity. See, you don't have to go to the other end of the spectrum and just, just wallow on the ground and say, I'm a worm all the time. That's not, what, that's not what biblical humility looks like. Biblical humility is not necessarily so much thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. You've probably heard that before, but it's good for you to hear it again. It's not be hearers of that word, but doers. What do you say? Amen. It's because of him that we are loved with perfect and eternal love. And it is by grace that any of us are saved. That has been made abundantly clear in these 10 verses. Praise God. Verses 7, 8, and 9. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith... And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I was supposed to stop at verse 9, but man, verse 10 is so good. You're going to hear it again. Amen. So here, here's the deal. There is a real danger for us as a gospel-centered church. There's a real danger for us because we believe 
with all of our hearts what Jesus told all of the haters in John 5. You remember that? He told them, you guys search the scriptures for eternal life, but here's what you are missing. Those scriptures are about me. We believe that the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, it balances upon the fulcrum of Jesus and his gospel. He is the cornerstone which everything else is built upon. We believe that. But because we often rehearse the gospel and we often rejoice in the gospel, we can sometimes stumble into the sin of familiarity. It's the same principle that happened to Jesus in his hometown. They all knew him so well there that they, they had no respect and no honor for him. The Bible says he was unable to do miracles there. Many miracles there. This is a tragic and treasonous response in light of how unspeakably awesome Jesus really is. If we lose our wonder at the gospel and it becomes for us a common thing, more sin and the destruction it brings into our lives is sure to follow. Verse 7 tells us that in the ages to come, God is going to continually be showing us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us. This means that for eternity, we're going to see more and more of the mystery and beauty and majesty of Jesus and his gospel unfold. And we will forever be overcome with joy and awe. Verse 8 shows us that there is no room for weariness in repetition of the truth of all truths. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. He just told us that two verses ago. And here it is again, and again, and again. Peter, in 1 Peter 12, he says this. It's 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 12, sorry. He said, it was revealed to them that they were not, he's speaking of prophets of old. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What did that just say? There are things in the gospel, things which angels long to look into. I would assume the angels are privy to a slightly higher amount of information than you and I. And yet, they have not exhausted the gospel. They have not exhausted the wonder and awe. They are longing to look into the depth and beauty of the gospel. The surpassing richness of his kindness toward us the amazing nature of his mercy and love. The gospel is it's, it's, it's like a, a jewel with, with an immeasurable amount of facets that as, as God spins it in the light of his glorious radiance, it just hits in a new way. And every single time, our jaw is going to drop. Some of you may have wondered, you, you see verses where it talks about uh, constant worship in heaven as if Potentially, a lot of what's going to be happening is just us gathered at the throne of God in awe, worshiping him for eternity. And some of you, because you, you have yet to, to cross the threshold of God's throne room in times of worship, because some of you have yet to really taste and see what, what it means uh, to, to connect with God to the degree that it's possible here on earth. Some of you actually are worried about being bored in heaven. 
And, and to you, dear friends, I would just ask, just, just please get on your face and ask God just, just to give you a glimpse, whatever you can handle, where you're at in your journey. But he would just let you have a little bit of a taste of what that's going to be like when you're in the throne room of God and his unveiled glory is upon you. Because I'm telling you right now, man, it'll mess you up. It'll do real good things to you. You, you, you can keep having like a, like a mediocre kind of relationship with God if you want, or you can press. You can do whatever you want. I'm just asking you to press. I'm just encouraging you to do that. I'm just asking you to believe there's more of God than what you've seen thus far, what you've tasted thus far. There's more of that water to drink. You think you've exhausted God? Can, can I just say something? If you think you've exhausted all there is to understand and to experience in God right now where you're at, you're a fool. That's foolish. And so if that's true, then why would we ever find ourselves in a place where we're not pressing for more of him? Well, Pastor Vince, it's because I'm easily distracted and sometimes I'm a dingling. Thank you for being honest. <laughs> I appreciate your self-awareness and honesty. It's true for all of us, friends. It's true for all of us. But may God help us, man, to be less foolish to be hungry, thirsty for him, for his presence, for his righteousness, the things that matter, eternal things. And how many foolish temporal things that are going to burn take up our time and our thought life and our attention and our affection. Man, it's frustrating. Praise God we've been set free. We don't have to be slaves of that anymore. Verse 9, Paul says it one more time, nice and loud for the people in the back. What's he saying in verse 9? Not a result of works, <laughs> so that no one may boast. Just in case, you know, three, four verses ago, you, you already forgot. Say it again, Paul, for the people in the back, right? He just, <laughs> it's awesome. He's going to let you know, man. He's hitting these things over and over and over again. Grace truly is amazing. May we never cease to be amazed by it. Man, I think sometimes we, we could sing that song and, you know, you guys know I'm a big nerd and just a neat nick and sometimes really picky about language. It annoys some of you, and that's fine. I'm happy to be an annoyance in your life. But like we, we, do, we do things with language that are very, very harmful. We, we race to the bottom all the time trying to think of the most like, hyperbolic word we can come up with. We, we exaggerate. It's, it's grotesque what we do. C.S. Lewis said, don't say infinitely, man, unless you mean it, because then what are you gonna do? How are you gonna say? What are you gonna say when you really want to convey something infinite? Don't do that. We, we'll say amazing. We'll say stuff is amazing, man. Well, <laughs> grace is actually amazing. God is actually awesome. And I'm not yelling at anybody because I'm sloppy with language too. I get pulled into it all the time. But I think we should care about it and be careful. There's some words that should be reserved in reverence, man, <laughs> for God. And for grace, grace is amazing. We should not be able to hear that without something happening in us, man. Thinking about the fact that I was dead in my sins, dead because of my trespasses, my rebellion, my treachery against the king. I was dead and he made me alive. Why? Because there was something in me he needed? No. Because of his mercy and his love. There was nothing in me that caused him to do it. It was just because that's how good he is. And he wants me for some reason. Wow. And what's even more of a wow is that sometimes that doesn't touch my heart. Sometimes I could think about 
grace and it, it just be another word. I'm not, I don't want to be okay with that. I hope you won't be either. All right, we're in verse 10. What's it say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Sin separated us from usefulness and purpose. And you know what? Purpose is a precious gift for which we should give thanks often. I'm not sure if you've ever been in a place where you found yourself feeling purposeless, uh, but it's an agony. It really is. Is there anybody in here, you, you can respond to this, um, raise your hand if you want to. Have you, do you know what I mean when I say this? Have any of you ever felt like your efforts were futile? There had been a situation in your life you felt like your efforts were futile. There is almost nothing more frustrating, I would submit to you. Um, I had an experience this week that, that kind of highlighted this. I, I, there's... Um, a series of like underground tunnels in this building, and that's where all the pipes for the boiler run. And so, uh, because of all the rain, they were flooding. And so, there's pumps down in these things that are, can't get wet. And so, this is happening. It's filling up with water. It's it's a big emergency. It's a it's it's a major deal. Lots of dollars potentially going to be lost. And so, you know, um, I, I'm not like the littlest dude you've ever seen. And so, I'm down in these like little holes. And and what I've got to do is try to dig a hole to put a sump pump in to pump the water out. And so the only place it can fit, and I've got like this much space, it's a nothing, you know, 18 inches by 18 inches. I've got to try to dig down and put the sump pump in. Right there in the one spot, it's concrete. I'm like, okay, that's great, because digging through concrete is so cool. So here we go. I got to get in this 18-inch little spot, and it's like, I'm talking like I have to dive in. You know, there ain't no like getting down in there and working. So it's like, I'm, you know, I got something hooked up on the floor around my foot, and I'm, I'm down in there, like, going after it, and I've got my little, uh, I've got my little jackhammer thing. It's, it's like a hammer drill, but it's got a feature on it where I can kind of chisel at something, and so, dude, I'm down in there, and I put, I put a solid three hours in of just chiseling on this concrete, and I'm, like, using my hands to scrape away the little fragments that are coming off of this concrete, and I'm throwing it in a bucket, and then I got to push myself out and move the bucket, and after, after, I don't know how long, it's like, okay, this, this ain't going. Something's not working here. And so I get this long bit out, uh, and I'm like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drill through this, and I'm going to see how deep this is. And I drill, so I drill this hole through it, and, and this bit is long, and it just keeps going and going and going. And finally, I, I figure out, you know, most slabs of concrete are like four inches thick for like a floor. Some of you are like, okay, dude, I don't care. But most concrete slabs are four inches, okay? What I was actually digging in, which I did not know when I started, was a concrete footer, which is eight inches of concrete. Man, it was so frustrating. And so I, I chiseled on it for like three hours with my little thing. I was getting so hot. I totally ruined the bit, and I'm scooping it with my hands, and it was just, it was totally futile. And I had to have a moment with Jesus after I figured out what I had been working on and that it was never going to happen. I just wasted three hours, probably took, that tool never going to be right again, and, you know, messed up my bit. So finally I had to go rent. I, I, went, to, I went to the rental place down the road and I'm like, give me the biggest, meanest electric jackhammer you have because we're going to about do some work. So 
I ended up getting through it, got it done, saved the pump, hallelujah. But that time, the futility of that, being down in that hole, and I'm work, I was working so hard. I, I couldn't have worked at it any harder. And I was getting nowhere. That's futility. And it's frustrating. And yet, many of us live like that all the time. That is how our life is aside from Christ. We could be going hard, trying to make it all happen, but we end up just spinning our wheels because we were made, each one of us, we were made, verse 10 says, for good works. And these good works are contributing to the much bigger and eternal work of God. And until we find that groove that we were made to fit in, we will always struggle with a frustrating sense of futility. And that is a miserable way to live. Please don't do that. However, the other side of that, when we inhabit the divine occupation for which we were created, which is loving God and loving people and reflecting the light of that love to a world who desperately needs it, there is a holy satisfaction that cannot be found any other way. Did you hear what I said? Because that was really important. Write that down. To experience the privilege of participating in building God's kingdom is the highest honor any human can ever attain. Let us remember that it is only by grace that we are allowed to take part in the same great and glorious work as the king of all creation. Praise God. May we be a people that understand fully how lost we were without Jesus. May we be a people who never get used to the fact that we have been found by Jesus. And may we take our place as salt and light, co-laboring with Christ to see as many people as possible know and love him for his glory and our good. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for these verses. Thank you for the repetition. Thank you for driving home the points because we need it, God. We need it. We, we could forget in a couple verses. Lord, we could. We acknowledge that sometimes we're fickle. Many times we're frail. But Lord, I thank you that we are no longer enslaved to sin, that we are not lost, but we've been found, that we are not blind, but we can now see that you can... Open the eyes of our heart and give us spiritual wisdom and understanding. Thank you, God, that we are not left to our own to struggle in futility. Thank you that we can be a part of your purpose, an eternal purpose. Thank you, God, that we can experience the sense of knowing that we are a part of something that will last forever and ever. God, I ask that more of us, we would set down futile, temporal things that hold our attention and Distract us from things that really matter. God, I ask you to encourage every single person in here that struggles to believe that they are loved or wanted. God, may your gospel crush every lie that would try to convince them that they are not precious and worth something. Lord, I thank you, I thank you for what your love does to our identity. I thank you, God, that in and of ourselves, we don't have anything to celebrate, but because you've loved us, your love for us, that makes us beautiful. <laughs> that makes us worth something. That makes us dear and precious. 
what you've paid for us, the precious blood of Christ. It means we can't even begin to calculate the value that you've put on us, God. And you're in charge. You're the king. So God, may we rejoice that you see in us something worth having, that you see us as your inheritance. We're so aware, God, that that's far above what we're worth in and of ourselves. But I thank you that you are rich in mercy and that this incredible love with which you've loved us, that it's indescribable. It is amazing. Your grace is amazing, oh God. Please forgive us, Lord, for the sin of familiarity. God, please forgive us for treating your gospel as a common thing. We all are tempted in that way. God, may the truth of your word, may the precious beauty of your gospel, may it be the most precious thing to us. God, may we look forward with anxious anticipation to being blown away for all eternity as you reveal the surpassing richness of your grace towards us. <laughs> I can't wait. We love you, dear master. Thank you for your help in these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.